one step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We're but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end. But they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America. We choose to go to the moon. Everybody to another episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 614 for the week of Monday, August 11th, 2014. Yes, it has been a while. We've been very scattered this summer, but we're going to try and get back to a regular schedule as we move into the fall and winter season. I'm Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me tonight is Mark Ratterman. Welcome, Mark. And if you think I'm going to talk and talk and talk and tell you about all kinds of trivial things, yeah, some things never change. So I'll, ju- <laughs> so I'll just say, hello. Very nice. And we will be joined later in the show by Jason Ryan, who is just returning from a special trip, which we will talk about shortly. But before we do that, let's get into the news. And if you've watched any local national news or checked the web, you've probably heard that it's the supermoon, as well as the Perseid meteor shower, both at the same time, oddly enough. The supermoon is when the moon is full and also at its closest point in the orbit to the Earth. Uh, This does happen relatively frequently. In fact, this is the second of three times this year that there will be a supermoon, the third one in September, uh, the first one before that in June. Basically, it's slightly larger than you would otherwise see. I I think, Mark, we were talking earlier, it's only about 30,000 kilometers closer. Well, you know, I guess it depends on how important a kilometer is to you for uh, for seeing things, but it's enough to have it be mentioned. In fact, uh, another show I was listening to earlier, they mentioned that uh, they also kind of favor the mini-moon, which is when the moon would be at its furthest from Earth's position. Not to take away from the supermoon, but, you know, there's a mini-moon out there, too. How about we just say size doesn't matter and leave it at that? <laughs> And I do see one thing. Uh, here it is, evening on the East Coast on uh, on Monday. The good part of the central U.S. is uh, kind of cloud-free. Can't say as much for the uh, Mid-Atlantic, Northeast, South, and parts of the uh, parts of the West. Not doing quite so good for clouds. So, boy, that makes a difference on these events that you really want to catch. Oh yeah, thankfully a lot of people had a chance over the weekend to see it close to, if not exactly at, a full moon. Because even still, it still is relatively large. And that's the interesting thing, is that is it actually larger to see? Because there are picture comparisons that show that it is, but it's not drastic. So are we really mainly seeing the supermoon because we're told that it's going to be larger? And that now we actually think to go out and look at the moon? Or... Is it actually not a psychological thing, but we're really seeing it larger? That's what I'm wondering. Well, you know, everybody's had times where they look up and they see the moon just coming up above the horizon and they go, 
wow, that is a big full moon. And uh, I don't know. It, 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 for me, not even as an amateur, I'd have a hard time figuring out which was which probably. But 10 to 15 percent, you know, I know people that can that can look at a uh, board and tell you how long a, a board is and, uh, you know, how long to, to cut something when you're building things. I'm not one of those. I don't have that sense of distance that folks have. Yeah, neither do I. I, I need a tape measure or some form of measurement to figure out exactly where it is and how big it is and all that stuff. But I think it's cool that people keep track of that because anything that gets your interest uh, away from looking down at a screen or, or uh, you know, looking up at the sky is, is definitely a, a good thing. Oh, yeah, definitely a good thing. Uh, especially with the meteor shower as well, the Perseid meteor shower, which is known to be one of, if not the best meteor shower of the year. Normally it can produce upwards of, you know, 60 to 120 meteors per hour. It's going to be a little harder because that darn supermoon, as gorgeous as it is, is blocking out a bunch of them. So you'll still see probably about 50 or 60 an hour if you get a perfectly clear night in dark skies. If you're in a major metropolitan area, you'll see maybe four or five, for, and that's just from personal experience. But nonetheless, it's a good thing to get out and look up. And if you took any pictures of the supermoon or if you happen to catch a Perseid in a picture, send them to us. We could add it to the show notes and share it on social media. I'd love to see it. You know, you can email it to us, mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com, tweet it to us at TalkingSpace, or post it on our wall, Facebook.com slash TalkingSpace. We'll give you full credit and love to see those pictures. And I got to say, you know, just talking about this, it really tempts me to, to think of sometime planning a, uh, a trip, you know, taking a holiday and going someplace where the viewing conditions would be really, really good around a time when the Perseids or some other celestial event would be, uh, you know, have a real good chance of seeing it. Because I just, you know, doggone it, life gets in the way and there's just too much time that I spend not outside, not looking up, not seeing those really cool things. So, well, vacation. Of course, you've been out uh, Arizona several times and seen some great skies out there. Am I right? Yeah, I was out there for the Leonids around November, and that was spectacular. And honestly, even here the other night uh, in Florida, the building that I'm staying in blocked out the moon. So it was relatively dark. I'm right on the ocean, so there's no ambient lighting. It was gorgeous. I saw about 18 in an hour, which, you know, it's a little lower and probably would have been better even without any moon, but still, they were gorgeous. Cool. By the way, if you were listening to this, you still probably can see it from when this episode comes out. The peak started on August 10th and goes all the way through August 13th, but you could still see it a good four or five days before and after, as with any meteor shower. So go out, look up, and... Make a wish on a shooting star. So, you know, you look up, you see stars, or maybe it's a comet. Well, that leads us into our next story, and that is the Rosetta spacecraft. It traveled about 3.7 billion miles so far, and it launched back in March of 2004. So we're talking 10 years in the making here. Its goal was to, after a couple of flybys, begin to arrive at Comet 67P, which we tried to pronounce the name of this a long time ago on the show, and we ended up just putting in a pronouncer because I couldn't pronounce it. It's something like Churyumov-Gerasimenko, 
Comet 67P is what we'll call it, for simplicity's sake. And that finally arrived at the comet on Wednesday, August 6th of this year, 2014. Uh, basically, they had to match orbits, uh, getting to a speed of about 34,000 miles per hour so that they match up. So that will now remain in orbit around the comet, essentially, uh, and will fly around it, mapping it, and looking for not only scientific information, but a place to put the lander. That's right, this comes equipped with a lander as well that is scheduled to be dropped onto the surface on November 11th of this year as well. If you've taken a look at any of the images that have come from the spacecraft, if you've looked online or anything, the comet is absolutely gorgeous and it's a really cool shot. It's an odd looking shape as with most of them. And this is going to lead some amazing scientific information, even without the lander. Just getting this close to a comet is an amazing feat and a first and exciting. I gotta admit, when we talked about it earlier this year, I didn't appreciate how complex and how challenging this whole process is of chasing down a comet and rendezvousing with it. I, at another first, I'm thrilled to to hear about it and to to realize that uh, that I didn't miss it. Exactly. Which, by the way, the name of the lander is Philly, P-H-I-L-A-E, scheduled to land on November 11th. And I do want to quote uh, one of the mission managers who, in a quote on Spaceflight Now, said uh, this. He called it Scientific Disneyland, saying the big roller coaster awaits us in November. That's the scary ride to go on. But we have all the other fun rides all the way through to next year, so we have a really great mission ahead of us. So... Comet Disney World, calling it that instead of that long, fancy name, 67P Comet Disney World. An exciting day for scientists and just enthusiasts like us. Without a doubt, and the pictures, if you see them coming back, are all really neat. The detail in them is too cool. So if you get a chance, go on and look at some of those. All right, now that launched back in 2004, but of course it is the year 2014, and there are plenty of launches still going on. Uh, we'll point out four of them, three of them which happened within a one-week period of each other uh, at the end of July, beginning of August. Impossible. Impossible? I impossible. Three launches in one week? Not only three launches in one week, but three launches in one week from the same launch facility, too. Whoa. I know, yeah. we're, we're getting crazy here. Yeah, well, I, I need to hear more about this. Okay. Well, it wasn't originally supposed to be that way. They're supposed to be two relatively close together. However, the first of the three launches caused a little bit of a backup. And the first launch was the GSAB mission, the Geosynchronous Space Situational Awareness Program. Uh, it's designed in secrecy and was only announced to the public back in February, so can't tell you much about it other than it launched aboard a Delta IV rocket. Now, it, it had been delayed multiple times. I think it finally launched, if I remember correctly, on the fifth or on the fifth attempt or sixth attempt. Uh, the reason I know that is because I actually was at the launch. So they had gone for at least four scrubs in a row. So I went up and, you know, figured out oh, it won't be too much of an issue. I go, figuring that I can stay the next day if it scrubs. It was a 48-hour scrub. Of course, Murphy's Law. 
but instead it did finally launch on July 28th, 2014 at 7.28 p.m. Eastern Time en route to an orbit of about 22,000 miles above the Earth. So that, by the way, was built by Orbital Sciences and did actually launch after all those tries, but of course I didn't get to see the launch, which is slightly frustrating to me. In addition to that, of course every single launch after that went mostly according to plan. The next launch was an Atlas V carrying another satellite for the GPS fleet, and that successfully lifted off August 1st, 2014 at 11.23 p.m. Eastern Time, right at the beginning of the launch window, uh, and that went into an 11,000-mile orbit. So finally, another launch that went off, and I was actually able to see that from my house here. Uh, so, yay me. <laughs> Uh, and then, last but not least, SpaceX launched as well. That had a little bit of issues getting off the ground, but it did actually launch from Cape Canaveral Air Force Station at the very end of the launch window at about 4 a.m. Eastern Time. Now, the beginning of the launch window was about 1.25 a.m., however, there was a scrub called Buy the Vehicle, at about T-minus 12 seconds. Thankfully it was a long enough launch window being 166 minutes in length that they were able to troubleshoot it and launch again. This launch by the way was AsiaSat 8, the next in the AsiaSat fleet that SpaceX has launched. And that will be a communication satellite for the eastern part of the world including China, India, Southeast Asia as well as the Middle East. So that's also an elliptical orbit, about 22,000 miles up as well. And although it took some time to get off, it did go off, and it did go off without a hitch. So those were the three from Florida in the week, and I forgot to mention the date of that one, I believe, and that was August 5th, 2014. So from July 28th to August 5th, three launches from the Cape. Not bad. Not bad for a facility that people think is pretty much shut down. Very true. A lot and, of people think it's dead. And I say that because people don't differentiate between the launches from the pads at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station and the famous Pad 39A and B at, uh, on Cape Kennedy on their, on their side of the fence. But uh, it's all rockets and definitely still in business. Exactly. I should add all three of those, by the way, were out of Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. So it's still the Cape, but it's Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. So I mentioned there was a fourth launch. This one was not from the U.S. This was from Kourou in French Guiana, which if you know launches, you'll know that that is the Ariane 5. Now the Ariane 5 rocket carried somewhat of a significant payload to the International Space Station, and that was the fifth and final of the European Space Agency's ATV resupply vehicles. ATV, of course, standing for Automated Transfer Vehicle. That took off on July 29th at 7.47 p.m. Eastern Time, 23.47 GMT. Uh, that launch went off according to plan, bringing up the ATV-5, which all of them have names. This one is known as the Georges Lemaitre, which is the name of the Belgian physicist behind the Big Bang Theory. Now that should be docked by the time this episode comes out, as it is scheduled to dock on August 12th. Uh, other than that, it's pretty significant. 
that's carrying 7.3 tons of fuel, food, and supplies to the space station. And now that drops down the number of suppliers to the International Space Station of cargo. Right now you have uh, the Dragon, which is SpaceX. Uh, you have Cygnus, which is Orbital Sciences, both of which are not on the most frequent of launch schedules. And then you have the Russian Progress. And otherwise, that's pretty much it for major resuppliers. Yeah, on one hand, it seems like there's always something going up. And on the other hand, we hear time and time again about delays, about problems with uh, on the Russian side with, with some of their hardware. And um, I don't know. I, I still have a concern as to how supportable the ISS is. And uh, chances are there's things that are uh, on the drawing board or planned for the future. But they sure had be a good idea not to delay it too much. Right. I mean, things are starting to get dicey now with the International Space Station. It is older. Basically, it's a pretty much 15-year-old space station now. It's showing its age, although it's still in relatively good condition. A lot of the pieces are still newer on it. But now you've got ESA not wanting to resupply it as much. You've got Russia, which may just be the U.S.-Russia tensions, but they're saying they're bailing out at the end of the current uh, date, which it's expected to last, and that's 2020, although there are obviously talks about extending that. But it seems like the International Space Station, as great of a science laboratory as it is, is starting to show its age and show our lack of dedication to it. It's one of those things that it's, it's gotten its headlines for its completion, and yet, I believe in the future, there's still additional hardware that's planned to go up to, to further the uh, extent of what the ISS is in terms of uh, hardware. So, yeah, obviously the International Space Station is becoming a former stomping ground. Like you said, you know, there's still pieces and hardware to bring up and science to be done. And uh, Astronaut, who I've had the pleasure of meeting him and his family, is going up later this year. There's still plenty of crews lined up, but it is becoming a how long can we keep this going? NASA said we keep going 2022, 23, maybe even 25. We'll consider that later. At this point, it seems like everyone's pretty much getting ready to bail out with Russia at 2020 and ESA saying, yeah, that's our last ATV. And leaving it all up to privatized companies now pretty much and Russia's progress to resupply it. Well, I don't know. I still got concerns about the long-term viability of the station with some of the hardware that could only go up with a shuttle and is no longer replaceable and they depend on, you know, spares that are on station. Um, I just worry about something happening, something failing that goes beyond the capabilities of the current supply vessels to where they have to reduce crew size from six to three, things like that. I mean, to me, that is something that there's not much of a way around right again those parts that were brought up by shuttle or that were built in the 90s and early 2000s and it's kind of hard to update or upgrade now you know it's funny there's hardware that i see at work and again i'm a technician for those that may not have heard me mention it i'm a technician with the federal aviation administration and we've got uh hardware that's what i would call new five to ten years old that is no longer supportable in the event of uh, component failures. 
And uh, actually, some of our older stuff goes way, way beyond that. But uh, new things can be surprisingly hard to support, too. And the logistics challenge alone, boy, I wouldn't want to have that uh, that job trying to make all of those what-if uh, decision fault trees. I don't blame you. Me neither. But it's good to have another European uh, cargo vessel up there. That's always been exciting, every single one of them, with the names and the character that they bring and the, the, way, they, the way they launch, maneuver, dock. Uh, that whole thing is just so impressive, and it shows us the capabilities that are there. Oh, yeah. And this one actually has a fun little bit to the end of it. Uh, so it's scheduled to undock from these Vesda module on January or February. Uh, and then it will go back into the atmosphere, destroying itself as is typical. But they want to change the reentry trajectory a little bit to collect data on how it falls into the atmosphere, uh, which they can then use to help try and predict how the space station will reenter when it's done. Uh, so it will be more of a shallow re-entry that would occur over the South Pacific Ocean. And this one actually has a camera inside to show pictures and video of the re-entry from inside the pressurized module of the ATV. And that's going to be some cool video which we'll look out for. Yeah, speaking of video, I remember the first time I saw a video from cameras that were on the uh, shuttle stack on the on the solids and on the external tank and, and the... Uh, uh, oh, I forget what they call it, the uh, the connection well uh, on the shuttle where they would see separation of the tank. And, I mean, first time I saw a, uh, a view of rocket launch and realizing that you're, you're looking down, the, down the, the structure of the rocket and you're seeing Cape Kennedy, you know, receding in the distance and, you know, all of that stuff is just extremely neat. And... To do that with a re-entry, again, another another good idea. Um, I hope everything works really, really well and that they get good data from that. In the meantime, they're getting some good supplies and fresh food and fuel and all that good stuff. Now, as we were saying, that'll be some awesome video, but there's even more awesome video that came out, and it is of a flying saucer. No, I'm not going crazy. I'm not turning into that guy from the History Channel shouting aliens, I promise. This was a NASA test at the Jet Propulsion Lab in California, and that is the LDSD. Now, of course, it's NASA, and they love their acronyms. That stands for the Low Density Supersonic Decelerator. The test occurred back in June, I believe June 28th, and they released the video now, which is spectacular, explaining the flight, what it does, and what it looked like on board. For those of you who haven't heard of it, uh, first, the video will be in the show notes, and then second, it's basically a flying saucer-type vehicle, which they took up on a balloon to about 120,000 feet. Sorry, I don't know the metric conversion. At that point, they then released it from the balloon, they fired up some engines to spin it to help stabilize it, and then they fired a solid motor on board to get it up to 180,000 feet and a speed of Mach 4, four times the speed of sound. The reason they did this is because it simulates what it would be like to have a re-entry on Mars. And that's the goal of this, is to test new ways to bring bigger and heavier payloads and rovers and other supplies and 
things in the future to the surface of Mars. Because obviously, as crazy as the seven minutes of terror was, this would be pretty cool too. And if you haven't seen the video, take a look. They show it spinning, getting up to speed. They then stop the spinning, and then they try deploying the parachute, which did not go as well as planned and was ripped to shreds. But nonetheless, it is still really interesting, and it's a test flight. The second test flight, by the way, is scheduled for June of 2015. But you got to watch the video of this one. It's amazing. I can sort of hear Gene McCulka talking about, and folks, that's why they call it a test flight. If it doesn't go perfect, we learn from it. That's why they call it a test. <laughs> you know? <laughs> I can hear him saying it, too. But, yeah, again, the possibilities of this in the future for going to Mars is absolutely amazing. And I know, Mark, you were looking on their website and saw a cool picture, too. Oh, yeah, I saw some pictures here on a, a article where they discuss the recovery, and they show it being hoisted aboard the ship. There's another photo there of divers that are uh, in the water to recover this after it uh, splashed down in the ocean, and uh, it shows them swimming up to the balut, which is a component of the initial deploy of the parachute. Um, it mentions that they recovered the uh, black box data recorder, and they recovered the parachute. Now, parachute that's destroyed, and they recover it in the water. That you know, the, the project manager is a gentleman named Mark Adler, and he says we're thrilled about the test. And thrilled? That's that's pretty high marks for something that didn't go perfectly. And uh, you know, the data that they're again, we talk about data. Uh, we could probably do a show just about data analysis if we could uh, dig into something that complex. Definitely really cool video, so be sure to log on to our website, TalkingSpaceOnline.com. The video will be posted in the show notes. If you're too lazy to do that, you can search for it on YouTube. Just search NASA Flying Saucer. You're guaranteed to find it. <laughs> and with Flying Saucer in your search, you'll certainly find a lot of other, uh, shall we say, interesting things, too. <laughs> Maybe not quite as based in science. Right, so your safest bet is just to visit our website. Sounds good. The thing is, we don't even make any money off you going to our website. It's just because, you know, it's easier to find things. So go ahead and check it out. It's all for you. Now, as we mentioned, the point of this flying saucer of sorts is to test out future ways of getting to and landing on Mars. Now, speaking of which, this past week was also the 17th annual International Mars Society Conference in Houston, Texas, and that was from August 7th to August 10th. Now, our very own Spaceflight Insider partner, Jason Ryan, was in Houston to talk about it, and I ended up sitting down with him, virtually, of course, and we talked about this conference. So uh, let's go ahead and listen to that. Welcome back to Talking Space. Thank you, Sawyer. So, you just came back, I believe, the other night from the 17th Annual International Mars Society Conference, right? It was actually last night, Sawyer. Uh, we flew out on the 5th, and we did that to kind of set up and to get a feel for the uh, area that they would be uh, requiring us to stream, record video, and shoot stills from. All right. So, for those who don't actually know, what is that conference about? You know, it's a very unique conference. It's focused on getting people to Mars. There's 
is a current uh, phrase that goes around. It's a little colorful uh, that Buzz Aldrin has been pushing, and it's very kind of along those lines. It wants more Martian exploration, especially of the crude variety. Okay, so obviously there were a lot of big speakers at the event. Can you just highlight some of the major talks or anything that you found really interesting? Yeah, I'm going to go a bit off topic a little bit here because of some of the stuff that interests me personally. There were a lot of small people that spoke at this thing. When I say small, I mean like in stature. I mean like in uh, what they were about. There were people that were, there was one, uh, uh, I believe her name was Jan Millsaps, and she was focused on getting a woman to Mars. And then there were some that looked into the historical, cultural ramifications of our interest in Mars. There was a singer who, or a musician who made music about Mars. You had a lot of little people like that strung out in various sessions, and it was a, it was a, it was obvious that it was a moving kind of target because we thought we were initially going to have to just stream and record three sessions, uh, you know, for like thirty to minutes to an hour. And so we got the gear we had, and we spoke to live stream, and they recommended some things, and we purchased those things, and we were all set, or so we thought. So we get out there, and it's a totally different animal. And, uh, you know, it was very exciting. It was a very good learning experience. Sir Richard Branson once said, you know, if someone offers you an opportunity, you take it. Even if you don't know how to do it, you just take it, and then you figure out how to do it on your way there. That's kind of what we did. Not the greatest of decisions on my part, but he was accurate in that I learned a lot. Uh, the people there were fascinating. They're, like you said, there were some very interesting people. Inspiration Mars was there, and they held... Uh, a bit of a, a contest, if you will, from ten different teams that would be have their ideas selected or, I guess, to become part of Inspiration Mars's efforts. Tabor McCollum and Dennis Tito were both there. I got to meet and speak with them. Very nice gentlemen, very professional, but experienced and knowledgeable and passionate about Mars. There were uh, a lot of guest speakers who were pulled in to be on a panel that would review these guys. Uh, these teams different uh, offerings. Scott Hubbard, former NASA official, uh, current NASA official Mark Geyer. There was supposed to be, I believe, uh, Michael Griffin was supposed to be on it. I'm not entirely certain of that, but I do know that he attended and he spoke and he had some very biting criticism for those who believe that we're currently on a path for Mars. He said that you're delusional if you think that's the case. So that was very interesting. There was also representatives from SpaceX, they were there, they were part of the panel, uh, of course Tabor and uh, Dennis were part of the panel, and then uh, Dr. Zubert himself was also a member of the panel. Um, on the night of the banquet, I have to say to me that was the most interesting night because as a journalist you always like getting those moments that are like, and I hate to use the phrase, but zingers, or oh wow he really said that kind of moments. And there were two that I'd like to touch upon. They're actually in the article that will appear on SpaceFlightInsider.com, but I'm going to share them with your uh, uh, listeners a bit sooner. Uh, the first came from a member of the German team that competed, and you'll forgive me if I don't remember their name. I believe the name of the team was Mars 18. The head spokesperson that they had stated that, oh, Orion won't fly until 2023. He could not have been more poorly positioned. He was on a table that was less than two feet away from Mark Geyer, NASA's head of the Orion program. And Geyer, not missing a beat, looked at him right in the eye and says, no, you're wrong, 2021, 
And they turned back and looked back at the, the front. I mean, the, the guy got schooled, and it was so beautiful, so classic, and just bam, right there. I mean, he could not have picked a worse spot to sit or a worse thing to say. Uh, in terms of good things to say, you know, there has been some talk about how the new space community and a lot of the Mars supporters in the Mars Society are not big fans of SLS. So it came as somewhat as a shock or a... Uh, I would say less of a shock, Sawyer, more of a validation of certain NASA efforts. When Tabor McCollum himself got up and said, essentially, yes, we need SLS. Yes, we need Orion. Inspiration Mars, through its efforts, has validated the need for both that spacecraft and that launch vehicle. And then he went on to show in his presentation a stripped-down version of Orion that would be used on SLS. There was also some interesting moments with the folks from the ALH-84 number, number, number uh, asteroid. Forgive me for not being very specific there. That was uh, thought to have held life at one time. That was pretty interesting. The speaker there had a lot of anecdotes, which he shared with the group. All in all, it was four very long, crazy days. But uh, when it comes to people that are passionate and excited about Mars, you simply could not find a better group of people that would share their interest in the red planet uh, more eloquently than these folks. So was there a consensus overall or was it very scattered on uh, ways that we should get to Mars and what we should be doing there? You know, Sawyer, that's kind of a tough one because um, I would, in my opinion, I had uh, two volunteers and then my wife came out and assisted in filming one of the other sessions, one of the other tracks in the room. She basically stayed in the room. And there was a, I would say there isn't a consensus. Uh, I think, and this is my opinion, this is not expressing the opinion of anyone other than my, the, this, this journalist, I, I get the feeling that there really isn't a consensus. Um, but there is, and I, I kind of an, an uncomfortable using this word, there's a bit of resentment because there are a lot of people that are unhappy that you know we landed a man on the moon in 1969 and here it is 2014 going on 2015 and at best we're 15 or more years away from landing a man on Mars or a person on Mars excuse me and so there was a lot of support for SpaceX and SpaceX claimed I think a lot of those people in this in that room in those rooms I should say are tired of waiting on NASA. They're tired of waiting on the United States government. Uh, but there was no consensus. There were some that say it should be an international effort. Others think that it would be, it would serve, you know, because of our situation with Russia as to be kind of like, um, almost like a second Cold War. And it's time we showed why, you know, democracy is the way to go. Uh, you know, that we can land a man on Mars, therefore we can do anything. Uh, a lot were like anti-SLS. They had one of the uh, gentlemen that was a friend of Mr. Boozer, and he came up there and he railed against SLS. It'll never fly. It's going to cost trillions and all this other stuff. And you know that may or may not be the case at this point. We don't know. But it's obvious that there's a lot of resentment towards NASA, and there's not really, um, uh, you know, we've had this discussion, Sawyer. You, you know, yourself, me, Gene, and uh, you know. The space community and, and the Mars group, I was called them, or the Mars uh, community, if you will, it become clear that we're not one unified body. We are a splintered and very, you know, fractured uh, community, a group. Uh, it's 
it's rather disappointing, but I mean, in the end, you know, you can kind of understand both sides. Some think we should stay the course of what the government's doing. You know, they put a man on the moon, so obviously they might be the ones to get a man uh, on Mars. And you have the other ones that have been waiting for 40, more than four decades, and they don't see any progress on that. I, I spoke with someone who knows Buzz Aldrin, and they relayed to me that he's very frustrated because there's so little progress towards getting a person on Mars and he's in his 80s now and he doesn't know that you know he'll live to see a person land on Mars and I'm not I, you know I, it was a very exciting conference it was very interesting and a great learning experience but it was a bit disheartening to see that we are such a splintered trying to find the right word there that we're not one one we're not of one mind or of one passion we're new space we're old space we're commercial space, we're, you know, anything that you want to describe, and there's other people that do it for a variety of reasons, but no, there's, there, there really isn't a consensus, and I, I wish there were. So then, were there any plans or tools or devices to get to Mars, or once we're on Mars, you saw that jumped out at you in particular? The biggest thing that stood out to me was the, the contest that Hubbard Goddard you know, Tito and Tabor and, and, and um, uh, Zubrin were on. And that seemed, I got to be honest with you, I was a little bit caught off guard because each one of these groups had some presentations. And there were several that were, they obviously hadn't finished what they were looking into or done the, doing their, their, their research. And in one case, one person even seemed to uh, take a swipe at the judges a little bit in an offhanded kind of way. So you kind of knew that they weren't going anywhere. You understood, but there were some that were, I mean, they had CGI animation. They had figured this all out. We use a, a dragon. We use a Cygnus. We'll launch on two to three of the you know, Falcon Heavies. Uh, we'd like to use the, the SLS, but we're not sure. And then it was obvious that, you know, you get a lot of people out there, Sawyer, who will say, oh, well, the, the Falcon Heavy is going to do this. It's doing this. It's, it's, they, they say is, 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 not will, will, will. And a lot of these groups were, with, were just based with, with kids, to me. I mean, they were in their or very early 20s. A majority of the people inside these teams were young. They were in their very early 20s. But they had their game faces on, and they had done their math, and they had figured out exactly what their path would be. Why were they using this? Why was one guy using an MPLM? Why was another going with Cygnus? And then some of them, you could tell they were in the process of reevaluating because maybe they didn't realize something. One in particular stated that they wanted to use the ESA uh, automated transfer vehicle or ATV and clearly that's probably not going to be likely because ESA's moving away from that. They brought the last fly the ATV just arrived at station here recently and uh, you know but having said that those little things well, you know, in the case of the ATV, that's not a little thing. If your core element of your vehicle isn't ready, you're not going anywhere. But it was very impressive to see so much thought in laying out this mission. And you, the biggest thing I, I got from this conference, Sawyer, is a deep sense of despair because it's obvious there are a, 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 a sea of people that are not only interested in it, you know, because all of us are interested in it, but they've paid a tremendous down payment on getting us there. They've got the plans in place. They've done the research as to what you will need in terms of fuel, launch vehicles, spacecraft, radiation 
uh, uh, protection. There was one that had great detail given the thought to that particular problem and how it would be, how it could be, you know, lessened and minimized. Uh, the other medical side effects of being in low, you know, in, in uh, microgravity for such a long period of time. So that was the most impressive part. The, the, the thing that got to me, though, was a sense of depression because in my estimation, these people have done the hard part. They figured out how to get it done. Now, it's just a matter of will. And I think, and I believe Dr. Zubrin said this himself, it's, we're not suffering from a deficit of technology or a deficit of will. We're suffering from being handicapped by political processes and by politicians. Uh, you'll get one agency or administration that's in that will give you a great vision, but they won't fund it. Then you'll get another one that will cancel everything and set us back 10, 20 years. The, the one feeling I got from all of this is I, I could only imagine what these people could accomplish without any of the politicians standing steadfastly in their way. That was the biggest thing I got. So does it seem like the private route then is the way to go? From your personal opinion or just from what you've overheard at the conference? Or do you still think that NASA has an important role in this? My view on that is NASA still continues to play a role, but they're a handicap because they have to do educational outreach, they have to do public relations efforts with foreign countries, and all these, they're, they're you know, you've heard the term, they're bled to death by a thousand cuts, and they're, to me, they're almost handicapped in completing a manned Mars mission, you know, in the near future, on their own, by a thousand distractions. And I still think they have a role to play, but these private companies and these these experts like uh, Mars One was a big one there, and I got to be honest, it from what I heard and saw, it was not as something that I would focus a lot of attention on as much as Inspiration Mars. I don't think that Inspiration Mars is the end all be all, but having said that. I think it has great possibility because if you can get someone or to someone to circle Mars and to have the public follow their exploits from liftoff to you know flyby to landing that could help get boots on the ground where they belong. Um, I, I tend to be of the mind I, I should have been from Missouri I think show me show me you can do it well people that listen to me or read my work will hear that refrain over and over again when I first started covering this I was very harsh on SpaceX because I said you need to show something first. They basically make made me shut up. And I have no problem with that because they did it the best way possible. They launched vehicles. They went to the International Space Station. They have demonstrated the possibility of returning their first stage uh safely back to Earth. They've done it time and again. Now, I'm still not in love with certain elements of the company, but given that they've shown the capability to do it far cheaper than what we've been brought to 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 be expect i think that the possibility of other company them and companies like them i should say is profound um, and you know in a perfect world an international effort in a public private venture would team up and put people on mars and begin the foundations of a martian colony now, for those readers who read my work, you will all know 
that I'm a moon, Mars, beyond, pathway kind of guy. I believe in creating a, a, a highway out into the solar system. But at this point in the game, as we are three years without a manned flight taking place from the United States, I will be happy with whatever we get because um, it, it's not good for us to be dependent on Russia, especially the type of Russia that we're seeing now. And if getting people to orbit Mars and then we'll, we'll try to see if we can get a colony started there, even if we're bypassing the moon, which, yes, I personally think is a mistake, fine, do it. But at this point, it's my old adage goes, better all of something than all of nothing. Good adage. If you had one final thought about the whole thing, a takeaway, a favorite moment, what would that be? During the banquet, you know, um, and I don't want to bring up any, any old topics, but there can be some negativity, and um, people tend to cling to it a bit. They hang on to their grudges. There were a lot of very pro new space people there, obviously, very, very pro, and I don't, I don't see that as a wrong thing. Todd May... NASA's SLS program manager um, gave his presentation and he was interrupted during his presentation but not by criticism not by a critic in the crowd he was interrupted by applause I found that to be incredibly inspiring because I am very tired so I'm very tired of seeing us attack and fight one another when what we should do is band together and fight the processes which prevent us from doing great things. So seeing people and hearing people and watching people who are obviously not the biggest fans of one side or the other support the other side, it gave me great hope. I think um, the people that follow the Mars Society and that are part of the Mars Society are very unique individuals. Uh, they were very uh, different from what I'm used, for, used to in the space community but I found them open to conversation. I found them open to new ideas, and that is something that needs to be strongly encouraged and applauded. Um, so I think that the biggest moment for me was seeing Todd May, and, and you know, he was helped by David Hitt um, from, from um, Marshall go on stage, and you could tell they were a little nervous, and they got applause. And it was great to see the two sides sitting table by table, in some cases correcting one another, other cases shaking hands and engaging in, in warm conversation. I'm not a big conference person, but in this case, I have to say that conferences are an invaluable asset in terms of us uh, maybe not erasing the new and old divide, but at least starting to blur the edges a little. Jason Ryan from the Spaceflight Group, thank you for joining us. Sawyer, as always, it is my distinct pleasure. Again, a big thank you to Jason Ryan, and be sure to check out his article on spaceflightinsider.com for more information on the conference, and just go check them out anyway. They're our partner, and they're a great site for space news anyway. Now, to finish things off, it is summer. And I know I like going into the fridge and getting a nice cold glass of lemonade or something like that. Mark, you have a fridge story, oddly enough, to finish this off. Might as well stick with something cool while it's hot here in the Northern Hemisphere. <laughs> well, this is a subject that I learned about thanks to NASA spinoffs and their 2013 publication that I received a few months back. And this is about, get this, a solar refrigerator that's battery-free. Let that sink in. 
this has its roots in a project that NASA had to discuss the, the question, to think about ways that they could cool a manned base on the moon. And what we have here is co-inventors Mike Ewert and David Bergeron, who worked on this project for NASA. Technology was licensed from NASA in 2010 for a company called Sundanzer. That's S-U-N-D-A-N-Z-E-R. And they have DC-powered refrigeration, and it's powered. Uh, there, there's different ways that you can work with this, but it's made one of its, I think, most fascinating applications. This NASA technology has, the, to me, the just fascinating application that it can be used as the first battery-free solar-powered refrigerator. It's designed for a small, off-the-grid consumer. Now, can you think of countries that could use refrigeration for life-critical things like vaccines that are so far off the grid that the, that the, the methods and the ways of keeping um, medicines and vaccines at the appropriate temperature is extremely challenging? Well, here's a company that, with licensing of NASA technology, has got these solar power refrigerators. And I looked at a brochure that they have, and it shows, a, in one case, a simple chest-type freezer. It's for battery-free vaccine storage. And the installation here, it says, install in a cool, dry, suitably ventilated area. Protect from beating rain and abundant dust. To ensure proper function, the appliance must be on a flat, firm, stable surface, resting level on all four supports. Do not place the appliance close to heat sources like a heater, stove, boiler, chimney, and avoid prolonged exposure to direct sunlight. They use uh, solar arrays that rather than being pointed uh, towards the equator, which is the customary orientation for, for solar arrays, they have the arrays directed east and west. It does something that I think is phenomenally cool. Ha, ah, sorry about that but it uses ice packs filled with a proprietary solution that freezes at four degrees centigrade. And that solution serves as the battery for the system so that when the sun goes down, when there's clouds, when there is no sunlight to power the compressor, and it's a conventional refrigeration system. It has a, a compressor, Freon, it runs, it's automatic, it automatically pulls the temperature down to a range of two degrees centigrade to eight degrees centigrade, which is 35 and a half to like 46 and a half Fahrenheit. It has a temperature operating range of uh, 5 degrees centigrade to 43 degrees centigrade, which is 41 to 109, just over 109 degrees Fahrenheit. But it's made to, to work in those conditions and to provide that cool interior temperature of 2 to 8 degrees centigrade. And to have something that takes no power, you don't have to plug it in, you don't have to provide uh, you know, frozen CO2 or ice blocks or anything. You just simply unpack it, deploy the array, connect it, and let it run. Wow. And they've got applications for uh, military, for both chest-type fridges and freezers, uh, for other, other types of device. They're qualified by the World Health Organization as the first battery-free vaccine refrigerator, use, and it uses this 
Director I, battery-free technology. Director I, meaning the sun, runs the fridge. I think it's fascinating. Here it is from technology licensed from NASA. It's another one of those cases of NASA doing things that no one else has taken the time or investment to do and providing the technology to the public to, in turn, have some phenomenal benefits in the world. Not just for us here in the U.S., but for anywhere in the world that something like this can be used. And when you look at applications, they mention uh, off the grid, like they even mention hunt camps. You could use this in a hunting camp. Uh, one of the devices I'm looking at has a, uh, a volume in liters of 60 liters, uh, vaccine storage capacity of 54 and a half liters. I already gave you the temperature range. Created weight, 161 kilograms. In place and working, 99 kilograms. And again, requires no battery. I'm just pretty well impressed beyond words for the innovation and for the, the willingness to, to find applications in the world. And that's one of the things that we really love about the technology that comes from efforts to do science and to fly in space. Exactly. Some of those spinoffs are absolutely amazing. And the practical uses for this is countless. It's amazing. It's energy saving. It's green. It can help out people in rural areas. Like you said, even hunters. It's great. Oh, it was also named NASA's commercial invention of the year for 2011. Sorry I didn't get around to this like three years ago, but I just didn't know about it. And <laughs> as is the case with dozens and dozens of other spinoffs that uh, we see highlighted in the NASA spinoff web pages and in their publications. Hey, even if it took three years, I'm glad you brought it up, and it deserved that acknowledgement, hands down. That is great. And with that, that brings this show to its conclusion. Again, thank you to Jason Ryan, but a thank you to those who joined us tonight, and that is Mark Ratterman. Thank you, Mark. Great to be here, as always, even if we have missed a few here and there. Good to be back. And it's a lot of fun talking and thinking and learning about this stuff. Exactly. Now, as we said, we're going to try and get better with posting our shows now that the summer is coming to an end. So this fall and winter, we're going to try and get back into the swing of things, and we'll hope you'll stick with us. Until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be, where you are. Mm -hmm.